Have you ever lost your confidence in someone or something or anything? Yes, of course. You've all had a moment where you've lost your confidence. Well, I, you won't be able to see it, but if you subscribe to my Substack, you'll, you'll get the sermon later and you can see the graphic from the latest Gallup poll, which updated its dismal 2022 results with the 2023 results, which show that Americans are losing their confidence in public institutions. 11 of the 16 public institutions that Gallup tracks are, uh, showed an increase in loss of confidence, and that trend, trend is only continuing. It's not just a crisis, though, I think, uh, of confidence in our institutions. I, I fear we're losing faith in each other and that this has been going on for some time now, for some, some years, and, and it seems to be picking up steam as we get closer to an election cycle. Do I, do I dare say that? But it, it, it seems like that to me. It does, it does seem that we, we lose our con- we're losing our confidence in each other. But today we have two stories. Today we have two stories in uh, the Old Testament reading, in Jeremiah, and in the New Testament gospel reading. Uh, where we have a story of what happens when, or at least an episode where we see God losing his confidence in men, God losing his confidence in us, in in two men in particular. We have the story of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a a true prophet, a chosen prophet, not not one of the prophets for hire that we read about in the prophets, those who pay, you you pay a prophet and he'll prophesy what you want to hear, the false prophets. He's not one of those, he's a true one. He has the word of God in his mouth, um, and, he, and, he, and he blasphemy, blasphemes. He, he calls God a liar. He says, God, to, to, to you are like a, a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails. He accuses God of deceiving him. And what happens is, is that this immediately qualif- disqualifies Jeremiah from continuing as God's spokesman. We know this because God doesn't miss a beat. There's no development of the story further than that because in the very next verse, God says, if you repent, meaning what he's just done was wrong, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. It's, so, it's almost as if God has said to Jeremiah, I'll just, I'll just pretend I didn't hear that. Uh, nevertheless, here's what you need to do to fix it. In a word, you need to repent. You need to be faithful to the words that I, have <clears throat> that I have given to you. A similar story is told in today's reading from Matthew. Jesus tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things and be killed. And what does Peter do if not call Jesus a liar in, in so many words? Peter says, never, Lord. He, he denies the word that Jesus just spoke. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus' response is harsh, one of the harshest uh, passages in the whole Bible. And certainly from the words of of Jesus, it sounds doubly harsh. Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, it's as if Jesus is saying, Peter, I am telling you something very straightforward. And yet, because you disagree with me, you seek to oppose me. Now, both Jeremiah and Peter lost their standing with God by doubting God's words. Jeremiah has gone on for a long litany of how he loved God's word at once, but then a little trouble came, a little persecution came, and he cries out and says, God, why are you doing this to me? You're basically, you're a liar to me. And then Peter, instead of saying, I don't understand, he he says, this is not going to happen. He's, He's doubting the word of God. To what extent do we do the same? 
especially when that word is plain and clear. Now, I grant you that there are parts of the Bible that are obscure, and no one disputes that. But there are passages that shine like the sun, and those passages can help illuminate even the darker passages with God's grace. For instance, there are two of these darker passages in in today's gospel, two obscure passages. The first is when Jesus says, when he says he began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's a dark saying. Peter couldn't understand it. The second one is for when Jesus says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's very hard to know what that means, especially the first time you hear it. Now, so you, of course you can be forgiven for not understanding what they mean right away. Sometimes when you come across these darker or obscure passages in the Bible, it's helpful to understand or tease out what they don't mean, right? So let's do that with these passages. First, Jesus is he's not going to Jerusalem to win anybody over. He's not going over there to win minds and, 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 and hearts. He's, he's, he's not going to gain the confidence of the Jerusalem establishment. Uh, so I think to put it in today's vernacular, anyone who was hoping that Jesus was going to go up to Jerusalem and drain the swamp was going to be very disappointed. Second, things are, are not going to change. Jesus isn't going to, nothing, nothing's going to change by, by Jesus going to Jerusalem, not at, not at first, at least, anyway. The Jerusalem establishment is entrenched, and it's powerful, and it will not think twice about conspiring to kill a popular leader. Third, those who want to see real change happen, and those who want to be a part of making that change happen are going to have to pay the price. The fundamental reform that needs to take place in, in Israel doesn't come cheap. So there's no cheap and easy fix here. Uh, the, the reform is necessary. People can see that. But uh, anyone who thinks that, that Jesus is just going to solve all of the problems in Israel for them and that it's not going to cost them something is mistaken. So these are, what, these are the three things the passage, these dark pas- this obscure passage does not mean. There's a we could sum it up by saying that, 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 let, let's, uh, that, that a slogan, something like, let's make Israel great again, is not going to work. And we certainly can't go back to the originalism of the law of Moses. I think the warning here is that neither nostalgia nor originalism will work. So what will, what will work? To answer this, I think it, it's helpful to ask, why did both Jeremiah and Peter doubt God's word. Why, why did they doubt his word? Well, for one thing, it was hard to understand, yes. For another thing, they suffered for it. So that, that those are two good, two at least explainable reasons, reasons we can relate to. And I think it, it, it makes my point. I think the reason I think these men doubted God's word is that they lost, they lost their nerve. Jeremiah recounts his initial love for God's word when he says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. But then suffering and persecution came to Jeremiah what Jesus in today's passage calls his, the cross. Jeremiah had to take up that cross, and Jeremiah lost his nerve. He got tired of carrying that cross. Likewise, Peter began to lose his nerve, I think, when he realized that when Jesus was speaking of his own imminent death, it was becoming apparent to Peter that if his master had to suffer, he too would have to suffer. And then Jesus makes that clear, that that is in fact true. 
not just to Peter, but to all the disciples. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And that's what seems to be the only method that is sanctioned for true reform by God. Whether that's going to be personal reform or political reform, it's going to cost something. The language of the cross is applied here. So if you want to change something, if you want to change something sinful or wrong or amiss in your life, or if you want to change something that's sinful or wrong or amiss in the world, the church, the government, the state, the gospel is telling us we need to begin by denying ourselves. Now, for most people, our thinking about self-denial doesn't get much further than giving up something for Lent, which I actually don't recommend you do that, but, but it is a useful concept for, for teaching the idea to children. I don't recommend it because by the second decade of your life, you should be getting beyond child, childish sort of teaching methods and start to grow in, in, your, in, your, in the maturity of your Christian faith. But I think, unfortunately, this is, a, is when a lot of people start to stop. They, they, start, they stop growing in their faith at that point. Um, their faith in Christ is frozen at a certain moment in time, and, and then their faith in themselves is what starts to grow. It's during these years that we start to doubt God's word and we start to try to justify ourselves. The process of self-justification takes over. We put more and more faith in our own words to cover up the things we've done wrong. We might say things like, I was, I was born this way, or I'm a, I'm a victim, or, or this is my authentic self, or I'm speaking my truth. And eventually, I think we end up in the place where Jeremiah was in his moment of apostasy when we say, why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? And so it's in moments like that when the church, through the gospel, dares to answer, you know what, you weren't born this way. The pain and the effect of sin, both original and actual, is, is, is what's causing the, the, the sin, and both original and actual, is what's causing this pain in your life. The church will say at this moment through the gospel, you're, you're not the victim. Christ is the victim. He's the one who has come to take upon all of the sins of the world. You've, in fact, victimized him. The church will say through the gospel in moments like this, this is not who you really are. What good is it for you to live this way and yet lose your soul? And finally, the church will say in moments like this, your word is not truth. Jesus says the word of his father, the words of his father are true and that they will sanctify you. So today's gospel is full of hope in the sense that what it comes to tell us is that you and I are not incurable and we don't have to depend on ourselves to cure ourselves. The, the efforts that we go through in self-justification are, are, are meaningless and exhausting. And I don't know about you, but I, I, got, I get tired of trying to justify myself. And I'm glad I have a, a, a God who has sent his son to justify me and justify you and to cure me. And the hope of that is that I am not incurable and neither are you. And, and that this parish is not incurable and that this church is not incurable and that this country is not incurable. Jesus tells us, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And, and that took, had its immediate fulfillment at the resurrection and at the ascension. But it also looks forward to the second coming of Christ, which I believe. I believe Jesus is returning. I think the signs are all around us. They've been around us. And so you could ask yourselves, why should you spend your remaining days propping up the old man, keeping him alive, or propping up this old world. Instead, I say, let it, let it fall, let it die, let it stop. It's going to collapse under the weight of its own self-justification anyway. Let it go. 
But before you do that, make sure you're right. Make sure you're right with God. I've said it before, and I'll say it for as long as I preach, that God doesn't just simply love us for being you or me. He loves us because we've been washed in his son's blood. He loved us that he loves us when we he loves us even in our death, right? He loves us when we were dead in sin. And his love is such that he will reanimate that corpse and give it new life. He doesn't love it as a corpse. He loves us enough to give us new life. But that comes by being washed in his son's blood. So if you haven't been washed, you won't enter the kingdom. King David wrote in his psalm, in the second psalm, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And so I say, kiss the son. Kiss the son, my friends. Put your faith in him. If you believe in his word and try to live by it and teach others to do the same, then God will never lose his confidence in you. Amen.